This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. How do you know that you're really where you are right now? I mean, Where are you getting this sense of place from? A bunch of data from at least some of your five senses enters your brain where it's cross-referenced with categories from memory. You're making a probabilistic calculation. This sure looks, feels, and smells like my office. Jeremy Balenson, my guest today, has been experimenting with cutting-edge virtual reality for 19 years now. His virtual human interaction lab studies the way VR's unique sense of presence, of putting you into a different place and maybe time from the one you're in, can be used for education, healing, and, yes, generally making the world a better place. His new book is called Experience on Demand, What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works, and What It Can Do. Welcome to Think Again, Jeremy. Thank you. So... One of the things, I mean, you're based at Stanford, you're in Silicon Valley, and one of the things I found really refreshing about your book is that you're talking about some pretty awesome technologies, pretty inspiring technologies, and and some of the very good uses they can be put to, but you're not not just a techno-optimist generally. You're talking cautiously about the ethical realities uh, uh, that, that, that these things might unleash and how we should use them. I appreciate that. You know, the book's now been reviewed by Nature and by New York Times, and both of them critiqued me uh, for being too optimistic. So, uh, (laughs) you know, we put chapter two, which is the downsides of VR, as chapter two, because it needed to be talked about early. And people just aren't encoding it or or just skipping it. So I appreciate you saying that. Uh, You know, I'm not a VR evangelist. I don't think it's for everything. I don't play video games myself. I did, you know, I have nothing against them. Uh, I don't have a Facebook account. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of going outside and doing things. Yeah. That being said, VR has its place. And when it's appropriate to use VR, it's spectacular. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, first of all, it wasn't just one chapter where you talk about the downsides or the limitations. You know, I mean, you're a scientist, you have a lab, and you're scientifically cautious about what is possible and what is not and what the ramifications might be. You know, I want to get to the awesome technology, and I want to get to some of the amazing uses that you guys are working on. Um, but there's one thing I wanted to talk to you about right up front, just to make sure I got to it, which is that standing where I'm standing, like Silicon Valley and and Stanford and also MIT over here on uh, closer to our coast look a little problematic these days in terms of the entanglement with industry. You know, at Stanford, we're allowed to talk to companies. And, you know, one of one of Stanford's goals is to take academic research and to, to let it go out and, right. let, and let it do things. And it, it's one of my favorite things about being there is that it's okay to talk to companies and it's okay to take your research and to help them use it in ways that are going to help them. And, you know, one of the, you know, whenever you write a National Science Foundation grant, you've got this section for an NSF grant on outreach. How are you going to get your findings right. so people know about them and how you help people? And one of the ways you do that is to companies build products that people can use. And it, it's, it, it's a different model. It's different from the Harvard model. It's, 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 it, it, it takes some getting used to as an academic, but I like it. I mean, the obvious downside is that there are, is a ton of temptation to be fudging data for the sake of the success of somebody's company. 
That, uh, I mean, just from where I'm standing, tell me if I'm totally like misunderstanding it or what checks and balances there might be on that kind of thing, you know? So, so let me give you a bit of detail on how companies yeah, yeah. fund research. Okay. Um, there's a gift or a contract at Stanford. You can have one of two things. And a contract, there's a deliverable. So when you get a government grant, it's always a contract. You have to turn this research in. When I work with companies at Stanford, I only accept gifts. And what a gift is, it says, Jeremy, we want you to study this general area. Okay. Here's some money. And um, we hope you talk to us again and tell us what you found, but you're not obligated to. Right. Uh, but, but I have never, ever... Uh, had a company ask me to to fudge data. Typically, why they're asking me to do the work is not to justify a decision they've already made, but they actually want to understand the answer. Here's here's an example. Uh, Google gave us a small gift fund, and they wanted to understand the benefit in socially networked VR of okay. having hands. Okay. So, in other words, if you're a company, what there's some cost to having sensors that can track the hands, and some cost in terms of how to make the graphics work. And they wanted to know the psychological benefit of being able to see your own hands and seeing the hands of others. And uh, what we have done is run a, a set experiment to find out the answer to that question, because you know we don't care about Google's interest there. It's just a fascinating intellectual question that we would ask anyway. And just to give you a sense, in my lab, the the largest grant I've ever gotten from a company is about a tenth the size of a typical government grant that I get. <laughs> okay, so gotcha. they're not giving us millions gotcha. to do this. They're just giving a little money that you can you know, run a study. My goal here is not to come out as a pit bull. Like I, I just, no, I love this question. I, I, love, it. I, just, I love it. The other aspect of this for me, and then we'll move on to the tech, is, is that also a lot of the researchers, including yourself at Stanford and MIT, and I guess many other big universities these days, are starting companies themselves based on their research. So that that's where, for me, it gets a little murky. So Stanford has got something called the Office of Technology Licensing. And uh, what the OTL does is they decide, first of all, they decide Stanford's role. Uh, and if Stanford's going to be part of it, if a student or if a professor wants to form a company. But because it's out in the open, right, and you're allowed to talk about it, Stanford has got these amazing rules to prevent what's called conflict of interest. So okay. they take as a given, professors are going to form companies. And they say, given that, how do we protect the amazing educational institution from anything leaking over? And because it's talked about and it's transparent, gotcha. there's a set number of rules and you follow the rules. That's one. The second is you disclose everything. So I have to fill out this form. It's a brutal thing I have to do at once a year, which is anything I've ever done with companies, I have to disclose to Stanford so that they know that it's on record. And Got that's, it. in my opinion, it's a good way to do it. Yeah, I, I think I'm part of my brain is mired in a very 19th century notion of the like tweed covered, you know, Oxford Don yeah. smoking a pipe in his study forever and reading. <laughs> you know, that's a good model too. It really is. Uh, and I like that we have both and having lots of companies around does change the tone of a campus. You can't, sure. but it doesn't mean that the tone is no longer beautiful in education. Or it just that you're means not learning things. Or yeah, whatever, it's, just, you know. it's just, a, it's a bit different. So, so let's talk about some of these incredible things. I mean, the, the virtual reality that that people mostly know and have access to Google Cardboard and and uh, the Sony, what is it? I don't even know what it's called. Yeah. Sony headsets. PlayStation VR. PlayStation VR yeah. and so on. Um, they bears some but not a lot of relation to what you guys are doing, right? So in the lab, we study 
how virtual reality affects the mind, and we study applications that, that work and ones that don't work in, in VR. And in that sense, we'll look at anything. So we've run studies with Google Cardboard and Samsung Gear, as well as the high immersive ones, uh, the Oculus Rift CV1 and the HTC Vive. The, the, okay. it, psychologically, being able to walk around a space and to interact with things with your hands, that's really where you start getting the mess of the epic gains in terms of engagement and, and learning. But there's a role for Google Cardboard, too. Sure. It's, 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 yeah, it, I'm mentioning brand names, so I guess that I didn't mean to call anyone out. Those things are cool. I mean, but I, you, yeah, let's you say describe... Phone let's say phone-based VR. So right, phone-based right. VR, it's cool because lots of people can see it. And it kind of it's a gateway to give people neat experiences. Um, the problem with phone-based VR is that you know one of the golden rules in my lab is we never get people dizzy or sick. Most phones don't have great accelerometers that can track your head movements okay. really, really quickly and really accurately. So you get a little bit of, uh, of jarringness sometimes from 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 phones. Now some of the phone-based systems solve that by the the cardboard or the plastic that houses it has its own accelerometer. But it's it's neat for what it is. And you're working on like haptic feedback and basically this the full sense of touch, maybe smell sometimes as well in environments. We just published our first smell study, okay. uh, the donut study. And it's a very preliminary study, a sample size of about 100. But the big idea here, Jason, is imagine eating a vegan patty and this vegan patty looked smelled and felt like the best burger you'd ever eaten. We've just solved okay. climate change and we've just solved the obesity <laughs> epidemic, okay? So the donut study, we had people in VR seeing a donut in their hand and half the subjects could feel a donut with haptics, it was just a plastic donut in their hands, right. and half couldn't, and half the subjects got donut scent beamed into their nose while half of them couldn't. <laughs> so imagine, uh, visualize this, you're pulling up your left hand and you're in VR, you're seeing a donut get closer to you as you're examining this donut and we have you look at it for a while. Half the subjects feel it in their hand, the other half don't, and half the subjects smell it and the other half don't. Okay. What we're looking at later on is we do a, a related task, which is a taste test of donuts. And uh, we had two theories going into it. One of it was satiation, which is just simply by having this virtual experience, you weren't hungry anymore. Got the it. other was priming, which is, wow, I just got reminded of donuts, I wanna eat a bunch. And what we found, and again, preliminary findings, right, right. Uh, uh, first study here, was that after the study, when people smell and held donuts, they ate less. Rather than overcoming, trying to overcome lust for donuts, you can keep your lust, but you lose the, the calories and the fat. That's, that's, the, yeah. that's <laughs> the home run. You know, we know that sight and smell and touch contribute to taste. Uh, this is this is well known in the perceptual literature. The question is, you know, in VR where you're adding body movements and 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 things just get ramped up perceptually, can it actually change your eating habits? What what for you is the most you know are the most exciting and the most conclusive findings? You know, where in what areas within VR right now? I want to talk about the empathy work, and I'll say that. I, it's the most exciting. I don't know if it's the most conclusive, and I want to be careful about that. Yeah, so, we can keep those things separate. Yeah. But yeah. So, so there's a huge narrative around, let's use VR to make people more empathetic. And we've been studying this since 2003. We've run dozens of experiments where the basic idea is you go into VR, you 
wear a body that's different from your own. You can be a different skin color. You can be a different age. You can be a different species. You can even become a cow. We've run some studies. And right. you experience some event that's fairly traumatic. You get prejudiced while you're wearing the body of someone else. And then we measure if you change your attitudes and change your behavior. And uh, in chapter three of the book, I summarize all the work that's been done there. And, and the answer is, across these studies, VR tends to work better than control conditions. And control conditions typically are imagine that you've become someone else via role playing or you read about case studies and and what we what we've demonstrated across a lot of these studies in general VR works better than those but it doesn't work every time it's not a magic tool that if you put this on your head you're going to become a nicer person it's really about what you do and what the experiences are right and can you talk maybe a little bit about one of one of the more uh, affecting or immersive experiences in terms of generating empathy within VR? So the one we have data for uh, that is, is, is probably the easiest to, to, to visualize is we had half of our subjects become visually impaired. We made them colorblind in VR, red, green, colorblind. Right. We had half imagined that they ha they were colorblind and all subjects were doing a, a, a motor task where they, uh, a physical task where they had to basically grab objects in VR and sort them by their color. Okay. When you're imagining you're colorblind while doing this, it, it's kind of annoying and, and it, it gets you a little bit jarred. When you literally lose the ability to differentiate colors, it's maddening. It's so mm. difficult to do it. After the study, we paid our subjects and then we said, look, if you want to stick around and volunteer and spend some of your own time helping other people, what you can do is you can surf the web and you can start emailing webmasters that their web page would be hard to see and understand if you were impaired. Uh. When you become visually impaired in VR, you spend twice as much time helping others as when you just imagine it. And so that's one of the examples that, that we like to talk about with, with data. And so for these studies, what is considered a meaningful sample size? I mean, I guess it's difficult to parade a thousand people in and out of, of complex VR labs, yeah? Well, there, there's two things to think about with samples. One is the size and the other is the makeup. Right. Okay. So in general, uh, what we're seeing in the field of psychology in, in general is larger sample sizes are becoming more important. Statistics are being scrutinized these days. And so in general, as a field, we're trying to, to have bigger samples. In VR, this has been challenging traditionally because you've had to have a fancy lab and it's in, at the better universities, it's hard to park and right. it's hard to, to get large samples. We just completed a, a large project called Empathy at Scale. And this was, uh, the backstory here is a woman named Deborah Bay. She is a program officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. She came to my lab on a tour and she did one of these empathy demos and she said, Jeremy, I, I believe your data, but there's two things I don't believe. First is I don't believe it works on real people. Um, <laughs> those weren't her words. I'm heading that. But she, she, non-college sophomores at a university. Uh, right. And second is I don't know if they last long. Meaning uh, I believe you're changing behaviors, but does it last a that, week that's or a month the, later? That's the, that's the other big thing, yeah. So this paper is not yet published, so I'm going to be very vague when I, when I sure. describe the results. So I apologize for that. But we've run a two studies uh, that, uh, that are in this paper. The first one is a very large sample. And Fernanda Herrera, the PhD student in my lab, she went to senior citizens' homes. She went to flea markets. She went to museums, got a sample size of north of 1,000. And she really worked hard to get a, a, a varied sample in terms gotcha. of a lot of the demographics we care about. And in addition, we paired with a Stanford psychologist named Jamil Zaki. Jamil, I want to say he's a VR skeptic, but he doesn't, he doesn't believe VR is going to produce empathy better than anything else. He, he just 
So he was a good partner in that when we designed our control conditions, we designed three really prominent control conditions, ones that weren't straw men, ones that had a chance uh, of testing. And so what I can say about the results in this large sample is that, uh, so this journey, it's called becoming homeless. Uh, you start out uh, by living in an apartment and you get fired from your job and you right. can't make rent, you sell items in your house and slowly you end up uh, having to sleep on a bus. And that's a very intense experience. What we measure after the study is we ask you to sign a petition physically so the helmet's off and you've got a pen in your hand. Are you willing to have your personal taxes increase to support affordable housing? And what we found in study one, which is the large sample one, is in general, uh, the immersive VR experience, a higher percentage sign compared to the others. So the, the VR changes your behavior. In study two, Fernanda looked right after treatment, two weeks out, four weeks out and eight weeks out uh, okay. with a smaller sample of about 150 subjects. And uh, what we found in that study was that the differences that we saw in, in the, the big study uh, remain after about eight weeks. So VR continues to outperform the control conditions. Yeah. I mean, and one wonders, yeah, like one year out, two years out. But I mean, I think the same could be said of reality. I mean, if you go, if you go work in a a soup kitchen for one day a year, for example, like how, how long do the residual effects of empathy last? So, so in the lab, we now try to put a longitudinal component, meaning have, give someone VR and then see what happens uh, at least a month or two later. Right. In most of our studies, where we're missing, uh, where a huge hole in our research is looking at the effect of repeated doses doing VR, the same experience uh, over and over again and seeing how that changes things. And that's a huge opportunity for anyone that, that would want to try to do that work. Right. Repeated doses, I guess also length of exposure in any dose, but you guys limit exposure to 20 minutes a time, right? For immersive VR. So for reasons of just general human health, if yeah. it be, after about 20 minutes, we'll take you out. And if you need to go back in, you can. But to be honest, Jason, there, there's very few VR experiences that I've seen that are worth being in for 20 minutes. So even though we have Got a 20 it. minute rule, our, our experiences tend to be shorter because it's, there's, there's not a lot out there that can keep your attention for that long yet. I mean, this technology continues to evolve, right? But is there some point on the horizon where uh, technologically and content wise, things are in a place where virtual reality is like, what would perfect look like? What is that? Do we want perfect VR? <laughs> I, I, right, right, I, I'm right. not sure we do. And so, you know, Jaron Lanier, he, uh, who's uh, the godfather of VR and, and who, who coined the term, he's got a funny uh, and telling quote, which is basically the best part about VR is when you take the helmet off and you get to see the real world and you get to see how rich the colors are and the nuance of the movements and the smells. And do we want perfect VR is another question. I mean, for me, I'm in Silicon Valley and the venture capital folks are, are, are everywhere and they come to the lab and I talk to them and there's a lot of, I don't want to call frustration, but uh, everyone thought we were going to go from, you know, when I started in 1999, maybe there was a couple hundred virtual reality goggles in the world, maybe maybe a thousand, I, I don't know wow. the exact numbers. 99, uh, okay. And now, you know, it's 2018 and there's, a, you know, a conservatively, certainly north of 10 million. And the VC folks are, why is it everywhere? Because their timeline goes from like 2013. <laughs> right. And for me, I, I want to stretch out that time and say, look, guys, we're really in this hockey stick function. You know, I'm comfortable with the pace we're at. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I like, you know, I'm, not that we're going slow. I think we're going at, at lightning speed. But I'm, I'm very comfortable with this, you know, what, what the VCs would call a slow release here. Gives you time to study the effects, gives you time to think about the uses. And so what are 
in your opinion, some of the good uses, some of the, the things that humanity like ideally ought to use this technology for as it continues to emerge? So uh, let me start by answering that abstractly and then, sure. I'll, then I'll tunnel down. The, 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 the kind of standard that's set in my brain here and, and my thinking obviously continues to evolve is VR is not for everything. You know, if, if five years from now people are reading their email in VR, then I've done something wrong uh, in the small abilities I have to change opinions because uh, it's not for that. And, you know, the downsides of VR, which we can talk about, they exist, uh, whether you're talking about simulator sickness perceptually or possible addictions or simply just being distracted uh, and smashing into into the wall or stepping on the cat. Given those downsides, we should reserve VR for very special experiences, things that in the real world would be impossible to do. Right. Dangerous to do, counterproductive to do at the kind of lesson that that teaches you something about the world, but you don't want to do it in the physical world or things that are so rare and expensive that you can do otherwise. And I'm happy to give examples of those if it's useful. Well, I mean, I wonder, you know, going back to the empathy generating and the possibility of VR experience that might counteract uh, racism and inherent biases and so on. Aside from sort of A, people who are really trying to better themselves and B, kind of like enforced conditions like school or or a the HR department of your company right. ma making you take yeah. a course. My question is, and I'm sure that that you're asking this question as well, like how if if it's good for somebody to go and sit in the Syrian r refugee camp somewhere in virtual reality, how do you make people want to do that? When you look at the, there's a whole field, this gamification, serious gamings, and there's been this narrative, just make it fascinating and they'll do it. And right, right. it's very easy to say and very hard to do. And, and um, I will say with VR right now, because it's novel, um, there is an aspect of that. And I'll give you an example. At the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival, we built a, a piece that, uh, that premiered there. It's called the Stanford Ocean Acidification Experience. And it right. was about how climate change affects the ocean. Um, Jane Rosenthal, the, the, the brilliant forward-thinking founder of Tribeca, she has this huge arcade. Uh, people pay to come in for, for a couple hours. It's open for about 10 hours a day, maybe, maybe uh, for, for eight, seven or eight days straight. Thousands of people are coming through here. We have a demo, which is basically a chemistry lesson, and we've got a line of sometimes 100 adults waiting an hour at a time to go learn about chemistry. Right. And you don't see that with a textbook. And, and I realize there's a novelty aspect to that. Well, and also it's, that, that one is immersive under the ocean. Yeah, you get You're to swimming kind of around. And yeah, it, yeah. It's awesome. Uh, but still, uh, you don't find people waiting online to, to watch, you know, read about this or watch movies. So there's, there's something pulling about this that maybe solves something that you're, that you're after. But I totally agree that I personally don't spend my free time going to do th things that are disturbing me. You know, learning about these horrific events, it's disturbing. And it's, it's, it, we don't, the brain doesn't want to go hurt itself. Right. And yet, you know, um, many of the large scale problems of the world uh, would, would be better solved if, we could make ourselves do these things. And if indeed this technology could facilitate real empathy. Forget citizens for a second. How about lawmakers? Should lawmakers, you know, be forced to do education about things like racial relations and climate change? 
I mean, they lawmakers in this country have voted that they need to do sexual harassment training, uh, and I think that's important. And there's other things that could be put in that bucket. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, this is over my pay grade. This question, <laughs> but, uh, but no, but I mean, but 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 education, I think, is relevant here. I mean, the kids, you know, are, are still spending eighteen plus years in school, where wherein they could be, if not forced to watch the most horrific atrocities of humanity, at least, at least exposed to useful empathy inducing VR. We can certainly teach them about climate change. That would be uh, uh, my, my number one goal. <laughs> All right. So I think, I think this is a good spot for us to transition to the second half of the show. This is where we're going to watch surprise video clips on topics that are chosen by our video producers. I don't know what they are. I haven't watched them. You haven't watched Fun. them. Let's see. Yeah. So this first one is, the video is called, The U.S. Government Wants Apple to Unlock Its iPhone. Oh, that's from a little while ago. So do the world's authoritarian regimes. So I think we're going to be talking about cybersecurity and such. Michael Schrage, innovation expert. There's a very famous phrase in the legal community. Hard cases make bad law. And the circumstances that Apple and the FBI and the Justice Department find themselves in, um, certainly not by design, it's a horrible tragedy that led to it, but this is a wonderful example of a very hard case. You have, without question, somebody who has done an evil, evil, murderous thing, and they have used a device that contains information that might be not just marginally, extraordinarily useful to law enforcement all over the world, certainly to the United States, in either solving aspects of this crime or preventing future atrocities from occurring. No question. Apple says that it is not, and they, this happens to be an Apple device. Apple has designed their devices so that people can protect their information. And now a federal judge has ordered Apple to help crack the phone and gain access to that information. And Apple, in a, in a very interesting letter from its CEO, Tim Cook, has said, well, we, don't, we are rejecting the judge's order to help crack this. Why? Why? Because the problem that emerges is, do people have any expectation or reasonable expectation of privacy when they use technologies on networks. By acceding to the judge's request and the FBI's request, a message would be sent to people all over the world, China, Europe, Latin America, the US, that if a rule of law, if a judge, Chinese judge, Brazilian judge, Russian judge, says that thing that you've encrypted on your device, we want access to it. It would basically mean you have no privacy if a rule of law, and let's be very blunt here, Chinese and Russian rule of law standards are different than American or British or German rule of law standards. Nobody could count on their devices to protect them in any other circumstances. To my mind, that is the definition of a hard case. I'm extraordinarily sympathetic to Apple. I'm extraordinarily sympathetic to the FBI and the Justice Department. I'm even more sympathetic 
to the families of the people who were hurt and killed in, in, that, in that attack, that terrorist attack. But the reality is this is one of those circumstances where there is no good answer. And whatever answer is chosen is the wrong one. So, I mean, there are a lot of different ways we can go with that. One of, one of the things that was bringing up for me from, from your book is uh, as you talk about the future of social virtual reality and like as they start to perfect, which I guess they are already doing to some extent, capturing facial expressions and micro gestures and so on, that basically you're capturing an enormous amount of data about people and it's it's digitized and it you know immediately analyzable in terms of its meaning and so on. <laughs> That's where we start here, and you know the bad news for what's this gentleman's name again? Michael Schrage. Michael, the bad news is it's going to get a whole lot more difficult when it comes to VR, because in addition to getting what you typed and maybe where you were with GPS, which is what we get from the phone, right? You're going to have a wealth of data about body language. Okay, so VR, in order to make it work, we have to track your movements. Current systems track what we call 18 degrees of freedom, uh, which is a fancy word to say that we know where you're looking and where your head is, and we know where your hands are in space and how they're rotated. Um, so we, we know your, how your head and your hands are positioned, and we can record that data up to, say, 90 frames a second. So it's a massive amount of data. In, in a 10-minute conversation uh, in VR, the file gets so big you couldn't even open it in Microsoft Excel. So it's a lot of tracking data. We know that body language is extremely telling about your mental state, about who you are, what right. you're thinking, what you're doing, and now that data is there. And we know about like, you know, we're, f I'm, I'm familiar with like psychological experts who can look at a person or look at their micro expressions and read them. But, but you guys are also, or, and, and other people in the field are building algorithms that can analyze that. Right. So, I mean, you could immediately process all that data at some point and say, okay, this person is feeling aggression toward, toward the person that they're, or even much more subtle and sophisticated. If analysis. you think about the, the history of doing this, this nonverbal analysis, if you wanted to make these predictive algorithms, you had to brutally hand code videos frame by frame to figure out somebody's facial expression. Uh, in VR, you don't have to do that because the data automatically gets recorded when you track it. So right. for the first time in history, all of these amazing people of the Paul Ekman genre, they Yeah, that's been, who I was thinking of. They, you know, they had to create their data. Think about when the big companies have these social VR, they're going to have an epically large database of human nonverbal behavior that no one on the planet has even dreamt of before. And in my lab, we've run studies, for example, we ran a study with about 100 participants where one person was teaching the second person uh, a lesson on, on, on recycling and, and, and how, to, how to do conservation. We tracked all their body movements using the Microsoft Connect. We then did machine learning where we, as input, we fed in the body language during instruction. So what was the teacher doing with her body and what was the student doing with her body while the instruction was going on? What we used as the output layer to train these algorithms was how well they did on a test mm. and what we discovered is that you can predict in cases uh, over 80% accuracy if someone will do well on a test based on how they move their body during instruction. So that's a pro-social advantage. Uh, yeah. Obviously, we can use this to do things that 
threaten privacy similar uh, to what Michael's saying there. So the, the, that's the con side. What do you do with that information? Like if you, you know, your body is showing that you're not going to do well on the test, study more. So from a teaching standpoint, I love this because what you can do if I, there's a few things you can do. So as a teacher, maybe I tend to speak quickly and maybe I can slow down my pace or uh, you can do things if uh, you can change what you're saying, obviously, to, to go back and repeat things. But if you actually think fast forward here, when all classrooms, you know, maybe this is 50 years, 100 years, when many classrooms, let's not say all, are networked and you're, you're, you're doing teaching and learning via avatars, you could do all sorts of fancy things to make a student uh, learn better given you know that she's struggling in that moment. You can, you know, right. have your avatar walk up to her so that, you know, she gets more feedback from you or, or look her in the eye more. There's all sorts of neat social algorithms that you can do to, to, to help someone who's struggling. And one of the major MOOCs did a mea culpa essentially in the news and said, yeah, it doesn't really, it's not really working, right? But there are reasons to, and and of course there are some MOOCs that, that you know, online classes that are working nicely, I suppose. But, but there are reasons to think that virtual reality can unlock a whole different areas in terms of education and democratizing learning. So one of the things I do at Stanford, I work with a provost uh, to, to figure out what what is our online learning strategy at Stanford? Because for a while we were all in on MOOCs and we're still very supportive of MOOCs, but that was our, you know, a lot of energy going into that. What I'm trying to pivot a little bit is to field trips. So virtual reality, in my opinion, with, with, with the 20 minute rule, it's great for these, you know, five or 10 minute jaunts. And, and you really, you feel like you're there, you get this intense experience. And uh, the neat thing about a digital field trip, first off, I'm not saying that we should replace physical ones because it's great to go places right. when, when you're a student, but you know, there's cost to those and you can only do them so frequently. Why shouldn't we have a field trip every day? Yeah, and not every child in you know New York City can go on a field trip to the Great Wall of China, for example. Yeah, so, so a, a tangible example here is Brian Perone uh, was a graduate student uh, who did his dissertation in the lab. His thesis was on testing our ocean acidification climate change module in a high school classroom in addition to college classrooms. Okay. And he found a high school in Atherton where the students actually go scuba diving in high school. Right. And that was our control Very condition was students, yeah. actual scuba divers. And we had a control condition in our learning experiments where someone scuba diving in VR and someone scuba diving in the real world. And we got to compare that. Now, very few students on the planet get to go scuba diving. So this is an extreme event with a VR simulation. Obviously it's free to copy and paste. Uh, So once you make one, it's free to the world. Right. What were some of the findings of that, the scuba diving uh, this is also a paper that's not yet published. Oh, okay. Uh, no, no, it's no problem. Uh, uh, what I can say comfortably is people learned. Okay, so people learned from VR uh, and no one got hurt. Um, I will say that, uh, and I talk about this in the book, one of the lessons we learned early on in high school, you know, high school's brutal uh, and kids sometimes make fun of each other. When you go in VR, often you don't look cool. It's just part of kind of grabbing at things that aren't there and, and, and being enthusiastic. And, gotcha. and, and uh, so one of the lessons we learned early on is not to put a kid in a high school classroom up in front of the rest of the class uh, and let that student do VR. Let's try to figure out ways to kind of minimize the, the possibility of people making fun of each other. Yeah, middle school could be even worse, I would think. We haven't tried that yet, <laughs> but uh, I, I predict you're right. Um, okay, well, let's go to the second video. Let's see what Great. they've got for us. Okay.
This is Bo Lotto, a neuroscientist, and the video is called How Diversity Melts Away Our Biases and Technology is the Great Equalizer. The best transformative technologies enable us to travel, right? But not just travel physically, travel in our minds. So a book, writing, this also leads on to things like augmented reality and even virtual reality. So in our case, we've actually done experiments and created a whole platform in augmented reality to see if we can explore how the brain makes meaning by engaging with a new layer in the world, not to replace the real world, but to expand it. Another example is the free space belt. So what this was was a belt that was in fact a belt, right? Went around your waist and effectively what it did is it vibrated in the direction of north, which effectively gave people the ability to see what they couldn't see before. They made the invisible visible. And what happened is that people would consciously use, make reference. Well, they initially they just felt a vibration. And then they started incorporating it into their movement, into their navigation, consciously. But eventually it became unconscious. To the point that when they actually removed the belt, they felt insecure. Right? So, effectively, they were almost turning people into birds. Right? Who were able to detect magnetic north in their migrations. And the brain was able to adapt and redefine normality based on this new information that it was getting, but not just the data, the meaning of the data, by physically engaging with the world. Because only in that sense did it come to literally make sense. So this is an like, extreme alternative empathy uh, direction here, but maybe we can talk about that, some of the alternative ways of viewing reality through VR or experiencing it. So one study that comes to mind that we published about seven years ago was in order to facilitate empathy, we allowed people to perceive each other's heartbeats. Okay. So imagine you're having a conversation with someone and you can literally either hear or see their heart beating in their chest. Uh, and what we published in this study was when your heart is beating and I can see it or hear it, I perceive you in a way that's, that, that's more intimate. It, 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 sure. it changes the way that I interact with you. Uh, and that, that's an example of using VR to make the invisible become visible, uh, which is similar to, to, to what the neuroscientist is talking about with, with the haptic belt. You'd have to want to reveal that. You know, there's a lot, a lot that we do in interaction that has to do with not necessarily malicious, but with deception. You know, we, we cover what we're feeling. You know, what do you think in terms of the effect that that will have on people? You know, you know you, knowing that that's just, that's just out there, that's just the way it is, like, and being able to look at their own, see that feedback for themselves as well. So Steve Mann is a guy that's been doing augmented reality for long before this consumer revolution decades ago. And, you know, he's believed for a while that in a world in which everything is tracked, there's no crime because you can't get away with anything because mm -hmm. there's zillions of cameras that are constantly not only filming you, but categorizing your movements. And so that's a plus side. Um, of course, it's terrifying uh, to think that there's no privacy anymore. And that's, it's, it's, you know, in this world of everybody having phones and filming and taking pictures and, 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 and you know, it's, it's privacy is different. And it's, it's, you know, as, as someone who's from an older generation, I'm 45 years old, I struggle with this. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, social media to me doesn't make sense. And <laughs> I, I, I struggle with it.
Yeah, I wonder, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there'll be generational gaps there. I think there may also be cross-cultural gaps. I mean, the broad East-West differences in terms of how people think of themselves in terms of individuality or collective. Like I would imagine in a collective society, people might be a little less uncomfortable with sharing in that way. There's a psychologist at Stanford name is Jeannie Sai, and she studies that exact, that East-West difference mm. and, and among many other cultural differences. And she and I have a collaboration going where we're, we're, we're starting to look at these cultural differences and how VR is perceived. I mean, there's obviously some value for individuals in seeing a, a very rich stream of feedback about like how you're behaving, because I think we not only deceive one another, we deceive ourselves, you know, about what's going on with us. So perhaps, you know, perhaps that can be helpful. But but I, I think that the opportunities for exploitation are many. I think we will be receiving uh, hamburger ads every time we look hungry. In my fifth year of grad school, uh, I bought an extra year because uh, my advisor didn't read my dissertation in time and I didn't have much dissertation work to do. To pay the rent, I uh, took a job at a market research company. Okay. And uh, one of my mentors, his name is Bruce Miller. And and Bruce taught me that marketing, when it's done right, connects a consumer with a product that he wants or he needs. And that's an obviously an extreme altruistic view of it, but I'm actually not of the opinion that advertising is evil. I, I think we love our free internet and we love, you know, we, we don't get to have this stuff if there's not ads. So I, I sure. the, things, the things that keep me up at night, getting a hamburger ad is much less worrisome than some of the other issues are, are around uh, the privacy that we talked about. Like take me to some extreme cases. What kind of things keep you up at night? In the VR side. So, um, yeah. it comes from a Moscow news agency, but, uh, four weeks ago, approximately in December, a man in Russia died in virtual reality. He was playing a video game and he fell through a plate glass table. And um, according to the news source, he continued to play instead of going to the hospital and bled to death. Wow. <laughs> it's, Assuming this is accurate news, yeah, but geez. It, it's yeah. horrible. It's, it's heart-wrenching. Um, that being said, in our country, we have many, many deaths from start, smartphone distraction people driving, many deaths. It's hard to quantify how, how often it happens, but our government has websites where you can go and, and read about the distracted driving deaths that occur from phones. So, you know, VR is not going to be different. People are going to walk into traffic wearing goggles. And, and especially when you start thinking about augmented reality, right. where, you know, which augmented reality is you can see the real world and we overlay some digital objects upon it. Uh, this is where, you know, VR, there's no illusion. You, you shouldn't, you know, uh, it's meant to be done not while you're walking to traffic. Right. But, but AR is actually in some ways meant to be worn while you're walking into traffic. And that's, yeah, you're going to be jumping after a, a rare Pokemon into the middle of the freeway. So there was, yeah, uh, yeah. with Pokemon Go, there's a couple instances <laughs> of, of that occurring. I mean, so, you know, these things, undoubtedly, they happen to some extent with many new technologies. There's going to be some period of time where people don't know what they're doing. But yeah, real people will will die. I don't want this to be something that we figure out later. I want to get get ahead of this. Right. And it's 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 critically important that we that we think about these issues as we're designing what the experiences are, you know, you know what the instructions are on the box for software. Let people know that this is not to be worn while they're driving. 
<laughs> yeah, design that design the software so it stops when you're in a car. I mean, I mean, this is another of those problems, though, of like taking your cod liver oil. You know, I mean, sure. like people they want to go race on the virtual racetrack. You know, they don't necessarily want to read the instructions. Sure, people still text and drive. Right, right, and, right. And most people yell at others texting and driving, and then just do it themselves too. And that's how we all are. I think the last thing I wanted to talk about before we go is the entertainment space, because there's some really interesting thoughts in your book about what a movie might look like in virtual reality and kind of what are some of the options for telling a story. And the immediate thing I went to as I started reading that chapter was, um, do you know about Sleep No More? So Sleep No More was in New York, you know, it's essentially based on Macbeth and you go into a room and you can explore and there are things happening around, but then sometimes people will grab you and take you somewhere and a narrative will unfold. So a few things to say here. First yeah. is that film is, it took a long time to get to the amazing films that we see now. You know, when you think of the first, you know, the, the, the first uses of the medium of film, you know, we weren't at Citizen Kane. It's going to take some time. So uh, let's take, let's all be a little patient and, and, and take a breath. Um, that being said, it's hard in film because you can't control the user's attention in VR. So think of a movie director as fascism, right? Uh, we get to control what you see when we want, it's called holding the camera and editing. Okay? Right. In VR, anybody can look anywhere, anytime. It's complete and utter anarchy. And so from a storyteller standpoint, it's very hard to tell someone a story when you can't control their attention. But so you design, so presumably one way to get around that would be designing a completely different kind of narrative experience. Like so, so you brought up Sleep No More. In the book, I interview Brett Leonard, and Brett uh, is the director of, of Lawnmower Man, and uh, he's thinking a lot about how film will work uh, how, when, it, when it gets to VR. And his term is he calls it story, wor story worlding. You're not building mm -hmm. a storyboard, you're building a world, and within these worlds, you have what's called narrative magnets. And these are these shiny things that kind of draws your attention and you go over to them and there needs to be some level of artificial intelligence here because you then get absorbed into the scene. So in Sleep No More, the actresses and actors, they see you and they incorporate you into, into their narrative and VR has to work the same way. It's got to be if I choose to go over to those people over there, they then change what they're doing and incorporate me into the story as a protagonist. Right. I was thinking that like, you know, if you had someone come to you in VR and you're standing there and some little girl comes and grabs your hand and is like, come on, we got to go over here. So there may also be a situation where we know that if we want to go on the journey of this thing, we go with the girl. If we just stand there, then nothing happens, you know? Yeah. And, and know? Th these are the challenges. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But pe people figure it out. Indeed. Indeed. Well, Jeremy Balenson, uh, I very much enjoyed having you on the show today. Thanks for being here. This was great. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And just once again, Jeremy's book is called Experience on Demand, What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works, and What It Can Do. And that about does it for this week's episode of Think Again. If you are a super fan, or if you just like our logo, or the phrase think again fits in with your overall worldview, I want to tell you about some very cool t-shirts that they're selling over at deepities.com. And if you get that Dan Daniel Dennett reference, extra points for you. Uh, it's the Think Again logo in seven different colors of a beautiful, soft, variegated cotton. I totally love them and will soon be nerdily wearing them everywhere. And it's helping a good cause. Uh, with each Think Again shirt purchased, you help deworm 
five children against parasitic worms, thereby improving their overall health, education, and long-term productivity. It's something you might not automatically think about, but it's a really big deal for many children in the world. Um, think again shirts, they're available over at deepatease.com. That's D-E-E-P-I-T-E-E-S. And if you feel like sending me a photo of yourself wearing one of them uh, anywhere in the world, um, especially in strange and interesting places, please send it to jason at bigthink.com. And with your permission, I'll happily post it to our Instagram or our Facebook group or Twitter. That would be really fun. So see you next week with something completely different. <laughs>